passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. Good morning, Crosswinds. Uh, if you're a visitor, my name is Kurt. I'm one of the, the pastors here. And this morning, we're continuing in our series of hot topics that you requested that we study about. This morning, we have a really hot topic. It's what does the Bible say about demons? Now, demons and the occult, that's very popular in our culture right now. In fact, if you go to the television shows, we're all familiar with shows like Buffy, a vampire slayer, or The X-Files. If you go to movies, we've all heard of movies like The Exorcist or, or Poltergeist. While movies and, and television shows portray demons and the occult sort of like it's fantasy, sort of like it's fun and entertaining, the Bible has a very different opinion. In fact, the Bible says demons are very, very real. Look what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, Paul says that in this physical world, behind this physical world, there is a very real spiritual world, and there's a battle taking place there, and we, as Christians, are actually involved in it. Let me give you a picture of what this battle may look like. In your mind, go back to 2 Kings chapter 6. At that time, evil king Amram Aram, was frustrated with Elijah the prophet. In fact, he wanted to kill Elijah, because every time this evil king would make plans and make desires to destroy Israel, what God would do would be reveal those plans to Elijah. Then Elijah would tell Israel's kings, and evil King Aram's plans would be foiled. So evil King Aram decided to send an army to kill just one man, Elijah the prophet. Now in 2 Kings chapter 6, we find that Elijah's servant wakes up one morning, goes outside of his house in the city of Dotham, and looks, and there, surrounding the city, is a mighty army with chariots and warriors sent there to take them. They're completely outnumbered. But while Elijah's servant is in a panic, Elijah isn't worried at all. In fact, Elijah prays. And look what he play, prays in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. Then Elijah prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. While Elijah's servant could only see the physical army, that was there to destroy Elijah. He couldn't see the mighty spiritual army, an army of angels that God had sent to protect him. And that day, they certainly did. This morning, as we glimpse into this unseen world and we look into demons, we're going to look at it this way. First, we're going to look at Satan. He is the chief of the demons. Then we're going to look at demons themselves. 
And lastly, we're going to see what we've learned and how it can apply to our everyday life as Christians. So let's dive right in. First point is this. What does the Bible say about Satan? The first question we'll look at is this. When was Satan created? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly when Satan was created, but we can get close to figuring it out. The first thing we know is that Jesus made everything. And I mean literally everything. Not just everything in the seen world that you and I are aware of, but he made everything in the unseen, spiritual, angelic world that we cannot see. The Bible tells us this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created, the him is referring to Jesus here, in heaven and on earth, the things that are visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now, this little phrase, thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, in Jewish literature of the day, those were the ranks and powers of angelic beings. So Jesus made all of the angels. The other thing we know is when he made the physical world and the angelic world, it was all good. There was no sin in the universe. We find that in Genesis chapter 1 at the very end. And God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. So somewhere between the end of the creation week and Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, where Satan comes in the form of a serpent to tempt Eve, somewhere in there is where Satan chose to sin. That is when also um, a group of angels joined him in rebellion against God. Now, what happened at that time? Well, there's not a lot that the Bible says, but there is one passage in Scripture that gives us a window into Satan's rebellion between the end of Genesis chapter 1 and the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. It's Ezekiel 28. Now, in the first 10 verses of Ezekiel 28, it's talking about the evil king of the city of Tyre. And then beginning in verse 11, all of a sudden it starts talking about the great evil influence behind the king of Tyre, which is Satan himself. And it gives us a window into his origins. Read along with me. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you, and you were on the mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, 
you were filled with violence in your midst, and you sinned. So I cast you as a profane thing from the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. So you see how we get a window into Satan's beginnings in those verses. He was created and started perfect. He was without sin. He was full of wisdom, amazing in beauty. He was in Eden when he began, in the very garden of God. And he was a guardian cherub, guarding the very throne of God himself. He was not created sinful. So God didn't create sin, but Satan chose to sin, chose to rebel. And thus begins Satan's origins. That brings us to the next question, which is this. What was Satan's original sin? Well, in Ezekiel 28, looking through the lens of the ancient king of Tyre, we were able to look beyond him to see how Satan sort of inspired him and animated him. And if we go to the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 14, it'll all talk about the ancient king of Babylon. But once again, it'll go beyond the ancient king of Babylon to talk about Satan. Satan who was behind him, inspiring him and working through him. And in this little statement that goes beyond the ancient king of Babylon, we find more about Satan's original sin. Let's read it. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly as in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. And I want you to notice that five times in this small series of verses, we have this little phrase, I will. In essence, Satan says, I have a high position as the guardian cherub of the throne of God, but I want a higher position. I want to be like God. I want God's throne. I want to ascend to the very top of the amount of assembly. What is Satan's original sin? Not being content for who God made him to be, but in pride, he wanted to become God himself. Self. Well, that brings us to our next question, which is, what does the Bible say about Satan's personality? What is he like besides prideful? And we're going to use a few quick verses to get a lens on these things. 2 Corinthians 11.3, it says, But I am afraid that, the, that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You need to understand, Satan is very cunning. He's very crafty. He's extremely deceptive. He is very tricky. He wants you to think that precious things in this life are worthless things in this life. 
He wants you to value worthless things as important things. He's a bait-and-switch kind of guy who's trying to trick you. He's trying to deceive you. Now, if we go to Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, we get more information on his personality. It says, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. My friend, Satan is angry. It says here he is furious. He is so angry that he couldn't become God. He's so angry he got kicked out of the very throne room of God for his rebellion. When he was thrown to earth in anger, he is trying to destroy you. He's trying to destroy me. He's vicious and destructive. He's an always angry, mad guy. No happiness in him at all. We continue. You are, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speak out, speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan's personality is that he is a murderer and he is a liar. He cannot ever speak the truth. He is a compulsive liar. Have you ever been around a compulsive liar? There's absolutely no way you can trust anything they say. They're constantly frustrating people. He's not just a liar, but he is a murderer. He wants to not give you life. He is committed to taking, ruining your life and leading you to death. That's what he's like. Revelation 12.10 says this about him. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan loves to accuse us. He doesn't just love to accuse us before God, but he loves to accuse us to ourselves. He is the one who always whispers in your ear that you should hate yourself. He is the one who whispers in your ear that you should kill yourself. He whispers in your ear that the place, the world, your family would be better off without you. That is what Satan whispers in our thoughts and our lives. Jesus forgives our sins. Satan constantly tries to remind us of our sin and never wants us to be able to escape from it. Well, that's a little bit on Satan's personality. Not the kind of guy I'd like to hang out with. But let's see what Satan does in the, the world that we live in today. Revelation 20, verse 3 says, And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Satan is about the business of deceiving the nations. He is a master propaganda artist. He wants you to believe what he wants you to believe. He does not want you to hear the truth. He does not want you to know the truth. 
we always talk about the Russian news media that is really just a propaganda machine trying to make the Russian people believe what uh, the government wants them to believe, not that they would ever know the truth which could set them free. Well, Satan's behind all that because he's about the business of deceiving entire nations. In our country, we think of fake news media, media that doesn't actually report the news, but actually just has an agenda to get people to believe a certain way through selective news. Who's behind all that propaganda and deceiving the nations? That's Satan. That's his alley. That's what he likes to do. He is all spin, no truth, deceiving the world. Second Thessalonians says this about him. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. What Satan is doing in the world right now is he is promoting false religions. He's behind all false religions. All other religions outside of the Bible and where the way to know God is through Jesus Christ are lies. Satan is behind them. You go to Haiti and you have voodoo and you have witch doctors and they put curses on people and things happen to people. Where's the power for that come from? We just read it. He is the one who promotes false signs and wonders. Satan is behind those false evil powers. You go to India and you hear people that talk about reincarnation. And you have people in this life who talk with great detail about another person in a previous life that they said they were reincarnated from. And were they actually reincarnated? Actually not. The Bible's very clear on that. After death comes judgment, not reincarnation. But who gave that person that information? Who is working through them? Satan does that kind of thing. False signs, false wonders, false religion to deceive people in the world. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5 says this, For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. What Satan does in this world is he works very hard to tempt people, to tempt us to sin. Now last week we learned as we studied temptation that he cannot make us sin. The book of James said that each one is led away by his own sinful desires into sin. But what does Satan love to do? He loves to put appetizing bait on the hook. When you are tired, when you are weak, when you are vulnerable, when you are lonely, lonely, that is when Satan likes to work in ways to bring temptation into our lives. From a supernatural perspective, he works into the physical world, tempting us to sin. Another one is Revelation 2, verse 10. We read this. Now do not fear that you, what you are about to suffer. But behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. I want you to realize that Satan is the one who is behind most of the persecution of Christians in the world today. 
The other day I was thinking, why is it that so many Christians are persecuted? Why is it that so many Christians have suffered horrific deaths? So many Christians are locked up around the world. I mean, you would think that Christians would be the best people in society, not the enemies of society. Christians pray for their leaders. They don't undermine their leaders. So why are they so persecuted? Unless Satan is the one behind that persecution. Satan who's angry. Satan who hates God's people wants to persecute God's people. Satan is behind the persecution of Christians. Well, that ends our little section on Satan and his background. Let's move on to demons. What does the Bible say about demons? And let's begin with this question. How many demons are in the world? Well, it seems that about one-third of God's angels joined Satan in his rebellion against God. Those angels became known as fallen angels. They're also called demons. Now, where do we get the idea that one-third of the angels fell? There's no direct verse that says one-third of the angels joined Satan in his rebellion. But if we go to the book of Revelation, there are at least two verses that you can sort of put together in close proximity to one another that seem to lead us to that conclusion. Let me show you them. The first one is Revelation 12, 3 through 4. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on his head, on his head's seven diadem. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. So here's where we get a third. And then you continue a little bit further and it sort of explains what this is going on. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan and the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels, there it is, were thrown down with him. And if verse 9 is giving further explanation of what happened in verses 3 through 4, it seems like it was one-third of the angels that fell with Satan's rebellion. This brings us to the next question about demons, which is what are the classifications of demons? And there's three different classifications. There's what we call permanently confined, temporarily confined, and unconfined demons. So let me look at these. First of all, let's look at what is the permanently confined demons. You need to know that not all demons that once roamed the earth are still roaming the planet right now. The good news is that the worst of the demons who once roamed the earth are actually right now permanently locked up. They're able to not influence the planet. Now, before you get too happy, there's still plenty of demons out there who are working with Satan trying to deceive the nations. But at one time, there was even more demons, and they were more powerful, and they were making the earth a far worse place. Now you say, Pastor Kurt, explain all that to me. Let's begin by going to the time right before the flood in Genesis chapter 6. There we read, The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, 
my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, and his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. Now let's begin by just admitting this is an extremely mysterious passage. And there's been tons of ink through church history spilled about this passage as people try to think through it and try to understand it. And we're certainly not going to get to the bottom of it this morning. But I think it's fair that we ask a few questions. Like, who are these sons of God? This actually could open up a whole subject called God's divine counsel. And that's certainly beyond the scope of our study this morning. But let's just say, right now, from what we can tell, these sons of God do not appear to be human beings. They appear to be angelic beings. They're finding human women attractive, and they're taking as their wives any they chose. They're having children with them. And if this is true, what this is is some kind of angelic being, which is having sort of a hybrid child with a human being, which, if you ask me, is completely and totally freaky. I mean, it wouldn't be weird to have a son of man have a human wife, but a son of God, an angelic being, have a human wife? That's really weird. Now, I know some of you are not going to agree with me on this. You're immediately going to think of Mark chapter 12, verse 25, where it says, angels do not marry and they are not given in marriage. And I'm fully aware of that verse. But the Hebrew text here, where it says, took as their wives any they chose, that Hebrew word could not be, doesn't necessarily need to be translated as a wife. It could be translated as a woman. In other words, these apparently divine beings took as their woman, they mated with any they chose to have a divine or an angelic human hybrid. That may be what's happening here, and I'm certainly not alone on that thought. But what I want you to know is this section that we just read in Genesis chapter 6 gets God very frustrated. Because immediately after this, we have the flood. God's response to this, because it is so wicked, is to wipe out the entire planet and start again with only Noah and his family who are true human beings. So the question that happens then, well, what about these powerful angelic beings who are taking human women for mating purposes? Well, Genesis is completely silent on these things. But the New Testament isn't. Let me show you what it says. Genesis chapter 6. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, apparently not being in a spiritual state, being some kind of physical state, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. These particular angels who left their proper dwelling in the spirit world, God has now bound them with chains 
kept them in darkness, and they will be there until the day of judgment. They are permanently confined away from this world. Second Peter also talks about this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now this does not necessarily mean all angels when they sinned, but it's talking about these particular kind of angels. It says they've been cast into hell. By the way, I will tell you that in my uh, opinion, hell is not a good translation of the Greek word here because it's not the normal Greek word for hell. It's the Greek word tartus. In Greek mythology, which is what Peter is referencing, Tartus was the pit where the mighty men of old, in Greek mythology it was the Titans, are kept bound until the day of judgment. So the idea is that these angelic beings that Jude as well as Second Peter talks about are not at this time influencing the world God has removed them from one time influencing the world, and now they are bound in a pit where they are kept until the day of judgment so they can no longer influence this planet like they did before the flood. Incidentally, the idea of this pit where powerful demons are kept, it's also talked about in the New Testament in the Gospels. For instance, in Luke chapter 11, when you have the Gerasene demoniac who is a very, um, very possessed man, possessed with thousands of demons. When Jesus comes up to this man, instead of this man terrorizing Jesus, he falls in fear before Jesus, and look what the demons in him say. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, the pit, where a bunch of their other demon, body, demon buddies have been kept bound and confined until the day of judgment because Satan removed them from earth and put them there. So the good news is some of the most wicked and dark demons that ever roamed this planet are not here right now. They're permanently confined in the pit. But there's also some demons that are temporarily confined in the pit. They're either there now and will be released later or will be put there later for a temporary time. Revelation 9 talks about some demons who are there now who will be released in the future. But in the millennium, which the Revelation talks about in Revelation chapter 20, there'll be a thousand year period of time where Satan himself will be removed from this planet and bound into the pit so he can no longer influence the earth and Jesus will be in charge. Revelation 20 says this, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven and holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. So we have some demons that are permanently confined in the pit, others that will be, will be or actually are temporarily confined in the pit. The other demons are what we call unconfined, and they influence the world today. This brings us to the next question. How do demons 
work today? Let's start in the Old Testament. The Old Testament doesn't frequently use the word demon, but when it does talk about demons, it's very helpful to understand how they work. Deuteronomy 32 says, And they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known. In the Old Testament, the nations around Israel and the false gods they worshipped, those false gods were actually demons that those pagan nations worshipped. The same is true today, folks. All the false religions in this world, anything that is not following the Bible and Jesus Christ, all those religions out there are run by demons. The worship in those religions is worship to demons. The Muslims, they worship Allah. Allah is a powerful demon, folks. It's demon worship. Let's learn more of what demons do in this world. More in the Old Testament. But they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. A common practice in pagan worship in the ancient world was child sacrifice. It was killing your child is an offering to the pagan demon gods. Now, folks, we don't see that today, but I think we actually do see that today. In our country, there's an incredible push to be pro-abortion, to kill children, to eliminate our children, especially right now with Roe versus Wade being overturned. Who is behind this incredible push in our nation? to make sure that children can be aborted and die. Ultimately, it's Satan and his demons, because they are about the death of our children. Matthew 12, 22 says this, But then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. Did you realize that demons can actually cause physical illness in people. This is a demon-oppressed man who could not see and could not speak. Now, this does not mean that all physical sickness is caused by demons. Very clearly, that's not true. But the point is that some physical sickness can be caused by demons. Let me show you another example in Luke chapter 13. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. And ought, and Jesus said, And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, who Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? For 18 years, this woman could not stand up straight. She didn't need a chiropractor, folks. It was caused by a demon. She needed Jesus to cast the demon out of her. Here's another verse. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and, what does he say? 
demonic. I don't know if you realize this, but demons love to promote disorder among people. They work to promote strife among people. They love to produce violence between people, divisions and disunity, in particular in the church, but not just in the church. They love to promote that in the world. If you see someone, even in the church, who's about selfish ambition, they're about, they want to be first, they want to be number one, self-promoting. James says very clearly, you know where that comes from? Demons. It's demonic in origin. Well, this gets to some more fun stuff. How did Jesus change the power of demons? What's fascinating is in the Old Testament, you don't see much victory over the demonic powers at all. You just don't. You see God's people to avoid them, stay away from them. But it's radically different when you get to the New Testament and when you get to Jesus. Jesus comes along and he starts kicking demons out of people left and right. At that time, there was many people who were influenced by demons, many people who were strongly controlled by demons, and Jesus effortlessly, with just a word, gave them freedom. Now, Jesus explains it this way. If it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his goods. In other words, someone greater than Satan and his power is here. It is Jesus, God himself, who has come. Let's get to some more of these practical questions. I should have put the third point in here, but I didn't put it on the outline, but that's really the third section here. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Well, it sort of depends what you mean by demon-possessed. If by demon-possessed you mean, can a Christian be so dominated by a demon that they cannot, they can no longer choose to do right, they can no longer choose to repent or turn to God or call upon God? If that is what you mean by demon-possessed, then clearly, no, Christians cannot be demon-possessed. But if what you mean by this is, can a Christian be tempted by a demon? Can a Christian be strongly influenced by a demon? Can a Christian be attacked by a demon? In that case, the answer is clearly yes. Satan, he tempted Jesus for 40 days in the wilderness. If Satan tempted Jesus, what makes you think that his demons would not tempt you. Of course they would severely tempt us, especially like Jesus, when you're at a point of weakness, exhaustion, and fatigue. By the way, the good news is that just as um, Jesus fought Satan's temptations in the wilderness by quoting scripture and commanding him to leave, we can do the exact same. James chapter 4 verse 7 says this, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. We can resist the devil, tell him no, and he will leave. Good news. Another question. Can Satan and demons know my thoughts? Well, 
demons cannot know your thoughts and demons do not know the future. The Bible is very clear that the only one who knows your thoughts and the only one who knows the future, the way it will unfold, is God himself. Isaiah 46 says this, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient days things not yet done. Only God can know your thoughts. Only God knows the future. But that brings us to the question, how do witch doctors seem to know the future? How do fortune tellers seem to know the future? How do Ouija boards seem to know the future? People strongly influenced by demonic powers. Well, here's the answer. Demons don't know the future, but they can observe the present. A demon can know what you ate for breakfast because it watched you eat breakfast. A demon can know what happened on a private phone call because it heard you make the phone call. And with lots of information, demons can strongly guess the future, but they certainly do not know the future. That is something that only God knows, and only he knows your thoughts. But this brings us to the question, how should I respond? How should I respond to demonic influence? Well, Jesus clearly had complete authority over demons. He gave that authority to his apostles, who also cast demons out of people. The apostle Paul cast demons out of people. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we will be in battles with demons and that we will actually have to put on the full armor of God in those battles. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We have faith. We have salvation. We have the word of God. We have prayer. That in the battles we have with dark demonic powers, things are very powerful. The word of God is powerful. Prayer is powerful. Faith is powerful. But how powerful are these simple things that we do in church in our everyday life? The Bible tells us, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, which we just talked about, are things like the word of God and prayer, are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Did you see that? The word of God, prayer, faith, righteous living, has enough power not just to dent Satan's strongholds. Demolish Satan's strongholds. Look what the scripture says. Hebrews 2.14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And notice this, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. On the cross, Jesus completely completely defeated and destroyed Satan and all of his power over you in your life in this world. You see that? And what did Jesus do to the demons? We read about that in Colossians 2.15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them in open shame by triumphing over them in him. They are literally toothless. They have no arms, no weapons against 
you and me because of what Jesus has done on the cross when he died in our place for our sin, taking away the consequence of sin in our life, destroying the demonic powers, which is why James chapter 4, verse 7 says, you and I, when we resist the devil, when we tell him no, he will flee from us. You need to understand what the devil wants. He wants you to be afraid of him. He wants you to cower in fear from him. But the scriptures tell us we do not need to cower in fear. We need to know the truth that will set us free, that Satan is defeated, and that you and I, as adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, have the very authority to tell Satan to leave we resist the devil, as it says in James chapter 4, verse 7, and he will flee. Now, let me give you one little practical illustration here at the end. When my children were growing up, every once in a while, they'd get up in the middle of the night, and they'd be filled with fear. Was it a nightmare? Was it a bad dream? Could have been those things. Sometimes you sort of wondered, was it a demonic attack? in the middle of the night, filling them with terror? I'll tell you what we told my children. You do not need to fear. Out loud, speak to the, any demons that may be there. Tell them to leave, that you are adopted sons and daughters of Jesus Christ. Pray out loud to Jesus. Open your Bible and start reading God's words. And we guarantee you, any dark powers will flee from your life and you'll sleep peacefully. Because as it says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Now with Satan and his demons, are they powerful? Yes. Are they active and at work in this world? Most definitely. But they have no power over you and I through Jesus Christ, who completely defeated them on the cross. That is why, as James 4 verse 7 says, when we resist the devil, it guarantees he will flee. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the truth in your word about the incredible power, Jesus Christ, that you have the incredible victory you run over Satan. Thank you for telling us the truth. And while most of the battles we have in this life really feel just earthly in nature as we share your word, we know that as we share your word, as we pray for people, those things have divine power to demolish Satan's strongholds in our life and in the lives of other people. So I ask that well, we would focus on you, Jesus Christ, above all things, where our power and identity is found. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Kurt's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.